It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, June 23, 2020. On today's episode for the her full hour, we have Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Hershey, take it away. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. I miss all of you who um, have come to my classes uh, regularly at Code St. Luke Library. It's so unusual to be speaking to uh, a, um, an iPad instead of to a class full of people, but this is the uh, situation that we're in. Um, I thought long and hard, you know, uh, what to speak about in our first class. And the first thing I said to myself was, you know, people are just tired of hearing of COVID and let's try to speak about anything else. And then whatever I thought of, led back to the situation that we're in. And so I said, let's just take a quick survey of the elephant in the room. And uh, then in other classes, we will go to talk about all kinds of other things. Um, no one in, in their um, wildest imaginations would have imagined what a change this disease has caused to the whole world. And even back in March, when we were just uh, learning about it, I don't think anyone suspected how much this would have affected our lives in just a short amount of time. So uh, just to go over the kind of categories in our lives which have been changed, let's talk just a little bit, of course, about the health uh, category where someone so many people have been affected and so many lives have been lost. Uh, politics, how uh, leaders of different countries, provinces and cities and states have been thrust into a role which they had no preparation for, some of whom have succeeded so well, some of whom have not. The economy, economics, how everything is turned so upside down. Um, uh, the whole economic world has been transformed so radically in such a short time. Um, um, psychology, people who are uh, studying psychology are looking at stress and, and, and other changes caused by this COVID. So sociology, people, group behavior, how that's been affected by the COVID. People wear masks, don't wear masks, um, education. How do you educate people without bringing them into a classroom, either in a, um, uh, an elementary setting, a high school setting, a college setting, a university setting? Religion, how do you carry on organized religion without a meeting place for people? Um, biology, you know, the, the change in behavior of animals because of the COVID, the lack of people in some places, the, um, the um, uh, changes that um, uh, human behavior has had on the animal world, the issue of climate change, one of the things that you, you, today, for example, if there had not been for COVID, I probably would have said, you know, did anybody notice how hot it's been lately and walk into a discussion on climate change? So uh, climate change and the discussion around that has been affected because 
the world economic slowdown has led to um, less carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere and therefore the um, uh, percentage of carbon dioxide has gone down since COVID has started. I mean, there isn't an aspect of human existence that hasn't been affected by this epidemic everywhere in the world. Uh, obviously, some places have been affected far more than others. There's some places where COVID has barely arrived, if it has arrived. Small islands in the Pacific, uh, isolated territories, even within a country. There haven't been any cases in many different parts of, of the world. And yet those people's lives have been affected almost as much as people's lives have been affected in places where it has arrived. And so um, the, we are living through uh, momentous times. What I hope, and I'm sure other people do, is that one day we'll look back on this in years back and say, remember when we were stuck in our houses? And remember when we had to walk around with masks, like we looked like bandits? Uh, remember how people were afraid to touch each other and breathe on each other? You know, it, it, will, be seen, it will be seen like a kind of a, a weird and wild memory. I hope that's what happens. Of course, the opposite is that the disease will stay with us, that there will be no cure and no vaccine, and this will be a sort of semi-permanent semi way of living. No one can really say for sure. Um, I have my opinion that they will find something that will um, cure it. They may not find the vaccine that quickly, but a, a treatment will be found simply because so many brilliant minds are working on the same um, problem at the same time. And one thing the human beings have is brilliant minds. And uh, the other thing we have is the ability to spread a good idea quickly all around uh, the world. We have abilities to spend bad ideas quickly also. That's a whole other, a whole other, uh, a whole other subject. Um, uh, the uh, people who are living in the North American news world, people who watch TV incessantly, and some people are obsessed by this, and some people want to ignore it completely, um, it, it shows how much it has taken over every realm of our existence. And um, uh, it's really an experiment that people will be looking back on years from now to see how did people cope with this, with this challenge, both on the good side and on the bad side. So um, uh, let's uh, start just looking at a few of the more interesting aspects of this, of this um, uh, pandemic. Um, we all know, of course, that the U.S. is in an election mode, and this pandemic has really changed the way things were going to go. The economy is the first thing that went downhill. Um, the unemployment rate in the U.S. and Canada and around the world has hit highs that have not been seen, some of which haven't been seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s and some have not been seen since the second depression in the 2008-2009 period. The amount of trade, the amount of tourism, the amount of travel, 
has been cut back in some cases from, uh, I was reading today that uh, the sales of tickets in Angkor Wat, you know, the Cambodian um, World Heritage Site, has gone down by 99.5%. Uh, international airline travel is down to tiny points of what it was before the pandemic. Uh, even local domestic travel is down by huge amounts. So this alone can't but have a huge effect on the rest of the economy and on how people live because international travel and tourism in many cases amounts to tens and twenties and even 30% of, um, uh, of the life of most people. Now, you know, sitting here and watching TV, we get this idea that we're in some sort of a cocoon and we think of the COVID as something that's affecting us. What we don't appreciate is how much more this affects people in the third world countries even though um, they, at this point anyway, some of them have not had the amount of deaths uh, and sickness that we have had here. Um, we know that this disease started in China. We know it spread quickly to Europe. And Europe was the one, Western Europe in particular, was affected the most. It jumped from Western Europe into North America. And only then from North America did it start to filter downwards towards South America, uh, to Africa, and then to the rest of Asia. And uh, at this point, those, the, those uh, third world nations are overtaking Europe and North America as the um, fastest rising and the most numbers of cases um, to date. And that will continue to happen. But those economies are far more fragile, and those countries are far more fragile than we are. We have, uh, Europe and North America have a nice cushion of protection from public health to um, better living standards, to better sanitation, water supply, um, private uh, toilets, and all these kinds of things, which isolate, make make it easy for people to isolate themselves. In the third world, there is no such thing as isolation. For example, people have no refrigerators. So how do you go and get your food? You have to go every single day to a crowded market and buy it. Um, you can't write checks. Uh, you, uh, credit cards are not there. You, many people are still working in a cash economy where you take banknotes and coins and give them from one person to the next. Um, the, 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 the bigger stress is that so many of these people who live in the third world, their relatives are working in wealthier countries and sending money back home. There are many countries in the world like uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras where uh, practically a third of the economy comes from money sent home by relatives. Philippines, the same thing even Bangladesh and India uh, to a smaller degree. Uh, if the economy stops in those wealthier countries, those people then uh, have no money to send back home. And there is no other means of those people to make a living. And so things get crashed down pretty quickly. Now, some people might ask the following question, and it's a good one. 
Um, is the worst over or is the worst yet to come? And of course we can't say for sure, but um, remember that I said that the rich world has a cushion, but that cushion gets thinner and thinner the longer it takes for uh, life to go back to normal. And at some point that cushion just runs out. It's like living on your savings and your savings run out and then what? So if, um, uh, if a solution or resolution to this problem isn't found, the longer it takes, the, the more those savings get used up and then the real pain uh, could end up starting. Um, another big question that everyone is asking is, well, is there gonna be a second wave? And of course, nobody really knows, but why do they ask that question in the first place? Um, it's because people look at the 1918 influenza pandemic called the Spanish flu, which took, uh, 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 took the world by storm in 1918 because of the First World War, because of soldiers moving around from country to country. Um, we in Canada lost 50,000 people in that pandemic, when at, at a time when our population was somewhere around 8 million. So uh, uh, it's almost 5% of the people in the country died uh, of that pandemic. So far, COVID hasn't had anything like that kind of effect, but uh, it did um, happen that the, the, the pandemic started in the springtime, uh, it di diminished in the summertime, and then when the fall came, it came back even stronger than before. And so if people are making parallels with that pandemic, they're calling it the second wave. Um, and there was a theory uh, at one point saying that the warm weather would, would um, diminish the COVID pandemic on the same pattern as what, ha as what happened in the influenza uh, of 1918. But I don't think that there's any proof that that's true simply because in the hottest of hot countries uh, like Brazil, uh, which is now the second largest country in terms of cases, um, you know, hot countries have had just as much suffering from this pandemic as, as, um, as um, cooler countries. And the parts of the United States which are hot, like Arizona and Florida, uh, are experiencing a, as many uh, bigger rise in the cases as, you know, bigger than the cooler places. So that theory really seems to have gone out the door. Um, <clears throat> just to uh, talk a little bit about, I was thinking about, well, what are some of the unexpected results or the unexpected results of this of this um of this covid uh, epidemic like who would have thought this could happen or that could happen so then i was thinking about um well you know how have people's buying habits changed in this epidemic if we're home what's happened to us we know for example that sales of clothing are way down because people don't have to get dressed. People can spend all day long in their pajamas and um, not have to go out. So 
the, because the stores have been closed in shopping centers, uh, there was nowhere to buy clothes except online. And then why buy any clothes if you're not going to be in a public setting and show people what you're wearing? Um, cosmetics, the same thing. Um, uh, I was looking at lists of things that have gone up or down in value and in, 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 in demand, and I just was looking at the up things. So one of the up things is RVs, recreational vehicles. If people can't travel to hotels and they want to travel, they just buy an RV and they have their own hotel and they can travel around. Um, board games, jigsaw puzzles, things to keep people busy at home, online language classes, bread makers, sandwich presses, vacuum sealers, soda screen, garden supplies, uh, snacks, chips, Oreos, uh, books, especially do-it-yourself books, bird feeders, exercise equipment, new pets, hair, hair, uh, hair clippers to, uh, you know, do your, uh, do your own, uh, not that I need it, of course, you see that, I don't need that, but um, for people who have hair and they need haircuts, then that's what they do, do-it-yourself hair dye for people who, uh, you know, who want to color their hair. Um, no one would have expected all these things to take off, and yet the, this is how people adapt to uh, new situations. Um, let's focus a little bit on politics. And uh, how has the COVID changed the way politics are done? Um, Firstly, we have to say that this is the greatest challenge that any political leader has faced because their countries or cities or provinces or states have been challenged in a way that they've never been. And so the mark of good leadership is not the ability to solve problems that are not solvable, but to um, lead their populations in a way that the population feels confident and secure. And obviously we have cases in the world where this has succeeded and cases where it hasn't succeeded. Uh, so who are some of the stars in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this play, we'll call it? And one of the stars is the leader of Germany, Angela Merkel who in a crowded country, the largest in population country in all of Europe, uh, a, a country where people live in cities, um, a country surrounded by other countries where COVID has had a much more uh, drastic effect, those countries being uh, France and Great Britain, its neighbors, Italy, also a neighbor, and Spain, also a neighbor. Uh, Germany managed to avoid the worst of the problems. Uh, in the Far East, the, the pandemic started in China, and yet two neighbors of China, Korea and Taiwan, have managed to have practically no uh, morbidity because of this disease. And so the leaders of those places have been uh, quite successful. In New Zealand, uh, Jacinta Ardern has the 
uh, probably the, the greatest star power of any uh, leader of the English-speaking world, in a way, because New Zealand has uh, avoided the worst of this pandemic, and she has uh, coached its population step-by-step step in, in how to do it. On the other hand, we have, uh, you know, uh, the less successful. Prime Minister Trudeau, I would say, has been moderately successful. His, his approval ratings have gone up. Uh, his communication with the population has been good. Um, the leaders of uh, Ontario and Quebec in the same way. Their ratings have gone up from before the pandemic began because they dealt with it in a straightforward and honest way uh, without exaggeration without fear-mongering, uh, and to be a sort of a steady hand on the, um, on the wheel. No one expects these politicians to have all the answers, but they do expect them to lead. On the other hand, there are some countries where um, this has been less successful. And the United States is one, and Brazil is another one. Um, where uh, the leaders sort of used the pandemic to divide the people. And um, I would say this, that as a rule, in a way, uh, politicians have used the pandemic to do the things that they would have done anyway, but use the pandemic as a kind of an excuse to be able to sell their changes to the population. So, for example, let's take the United States, for example. Trump has always been an isolationist. Uh, he's always been anti-immigrant. He's always been anti-free trade. And, uh, you know, one of the very first things he did is he said, well, I stopped all uh, airline travel from China to, to the United States. The crazy thing is, of course, is that although it's true that the epidemic started in China, relatively speaking, they had almost no, no cases. Even if the number of cases they had is more than they said they had, still clearly there haven't been the deaths and there hasn't been the spread of it all over the country. So if I wanted to open up my skies to a safe country that's large and has a lot of uh, customers, if I were the US, China would be the best place to start to open up and allow Chinese flights to come to the US. Um, but of course, that's not in Trump's playbook. Um, he uh, pulled out of the World Health Organization and the, the World Trade Organization saying these organizations don't serve the US properly. And yet we all know, of course, that the World Health Organization had the first COVID test, which Trump refused to use, and therefore a month went by until a bad test was fixed and the US was behind the eight ball from the get-go. Um, you know, all of you know that the US has had over two million cases of COVID and uh, over 200,000 deaths. So let's ask the question, how do we know that these numbers are accurate? And the answer is, of course, we don't know. For sure, we don't know how many people have uh, been affected by the disease because the disease could be asymptomatic and you could have it and not even know that you would have it. So how could you possibly be counted unless each and every person in the whole country was tested 
or representative samples were done on a very large sample basis. And those are the only ways that you would know. A little bit easier to know is how many people have died of it. And yet, we don't have good figures on that as well. Why is that? Because, um, especially at the beginning, nobody really knew what the um, deaths were caused by. They knew some people were dying and they um, didn't know what was the cause. And so that cause of COVID wasn't marked down. So one way that people are doing this, trying to get a measure is to say, okay, how many people as a whole died last year in the month of March and how many people this year died in the month of March? And if there's a huge difference, well, we could say, or February or January, we could say that it was most likely COVID was the cause of most of those extra deaths. So I did some little research and found that the U.S. has had 65,000 excess deaths, what's called excess deaths, more than would have been the case um, uh, in those first three months. More than likely, most of those are due to COVID, more than likely. Um, and so the U.S. has probably had well over a quarter of a million people die of this disease um, up to date. In Canada, we have been more fortunate. Uh, is it because we've taken better care? Uh, is it because, um, it's not because people are more spread out, um, uh, but uh, it's probably because people have been less um, willing to break the rules that were established at the very beginning. Um, What other, what other, um, what other uh, steps have been taken by politicians using this COVID as a cover to do what they would have done anyway? So I said, uh, you know, with Trump, it's withdrawing from the World Trade Organization. It's cutting off contacts with uh, the rest of the world. It's stopping trade to come into the U.S. where it's not convenient. Um, uh, many countries, and I have Cambodia as a great example, have enacted laws to consolidate power in the uh, hands of the leaders and to eliminate any kind of press freedom. And the idea is, in these type of countries, they say, well, if the press reports on the reality of the situation, people will get scared and panic, and we don't want that. Therefore, we have to uh, eliminate any rule that allows the press to publish whatever they want and to put in jail any, um, any uh, uh, writers who write uh, um, articles that will uh, challenge the order, the, the order. And if I'm not mistaken, President Trump said the same thing. He said, geez, you know, the reporters should be put in jail for what they wrote. Um, it's tempting. It's tempting to kill the messenger. If you can't fight the problem, it's tempting to fight the people who report on the problem. And in societies of the Western world that have a strong uh, protections of press freedom, it's one thing. But in other countries where, um, you know, a dictator can walk into a, a newspaper and just pull the plug and, and turn off the electricity, 
it's so easy to stop criticism in that way. Um, you know, the, the internet notwithstanding. The US and the government has long had, the, the Trump government has long had a, uh, a hatred of immigrants and immigration. And so by saying, well, you know, we don't want immigrants to bring COVID to our shores, uh, therefore, we're not allowing any, any immigrants to come into the country. Uh, it's easy to do to use COVID as an excuse. The unemployment rate, which has gone up so high, so much everywhere, is another one which says, well, why bring immigrants to a country who will take jobs that the people, our own people, could, could have? Uh, by and large, this argument is not correct that immigrants provide more jobs than take away, that immigrants provide more skills. Uh, they, uh, within a relatively short time, have investments to make and hire local people to their uh, companies. Uh, immigrants have the, the um, abilities and, and the talents to do things that local people don't have. That's why they're coming to Canada or the US in the first place. Um, other countries have used uh, uh, the COVID threat in more, uh, let's say, more negative ways to put the blame on, on minority groups for the disease. And the champion of this putting the blame would have to be in India, where Mr. Modi has blamed the Muslims for COVID and has started rumors saying that the Muslims are spreading it all around on purpose to get the rest of the people sick. Um, um, in uh, other parts of Europe, in, in Europe, some of the right-wing people in Germany and in Hungary and in Italy have all blamed immigrants for the disease. Even in the US, and I think even here, uh, Asian people have been attacked, insulted, um, told to go back home and to take the virus with them, and uh, a stress on a country, stress on a population leads to um, some people uh, casting blame on weaker elements of society for what they feel is the uh, problems of the whole country. Um, and so in other words, in that way, the stress of COVID, whether it's economic stress or health stress, brings out the best in people on some cases and brings out the worst in people in other cases. But it certainly has changed the way people are behaving in all, in all aspects. Um, one interesting thing, something that we follow, something that people might be interested in, is if you think of Israel and um, uh, that, that country's uh, reaction to COVID, uh, the country has been affected all much more, in a much more mild way than we have, but they went through three elections without establishing a government. And um, it was almost a sort of deadlock, a tie uh, between the Netanyahu forces and the anti-Netanyahu forces. And Netanyahu himself, um, was such a great uh, politician to use COVID to say, well, we can't run a country with no government during an epidemic. And therefore he convinced um, the leader of the opposition to uh, join him 
in a kind of a semi-unity government in order to fight the COVID um, epidemic. And had there not been this COVID epidemic, it's unlikely that he would have been able to do that. And so uh, you could see that in, in so many, in all ways of life, this epidemic has caused changes and has um, affected everyone, whether, whether they're close or far, whether they're directly affected or not affected. Um, and uh, it's just a remarkable time that we're living in. One of the biggest questions that we all face is to say, well, how, do we how to evaluate risk? How do we evaluate risk and reward? How do we balance off the risk of getting the disease with the reward of starting the economy and getting people back to work and, and getting life back to normal? And the biggest problem with trying to resolve this question is it's really unknown. It's really unknown. There's so many unknowns in this disease, even now, that um, uh, it, it's difficult to make a good judgment on how to evaluate the risk-reward uh, um, uh, dilemma. Uh, it's something that people and leaders are doing kind of one step at a time. Take a step forward and see what happens. Take a step backward and see what happens. And, um, and th that is the only way to, to act in a time when we don't have all the answers. And I think that uh, each is doing it in their own way. Now, some people might ask the question, well, how come um, we can't have a, either a world which acts all in the same way at the same time, or at least a country that has a national policy on how to react to this epidemic. Um, why is it that it seems to be that each um, province or state or municipality has its own rules, its own, um, its own uh, bylaws and its own way of doing things? And does that make any sense when it's a national epidemic and a worldwide epidemic that, should, that affects everybody in the same, almost in the same way. And um, the answer is because it, 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 health-wise it affects people in the same way, but in its, um, in its uh, presence, in, in its uh, concentration, it doesn't affect everyone in the same way. And so it was normal for people living in rural America and rural Canada to say, why are the politicians shutting our country down and putting everyone out of work when we don't see any problem? Because they didn't see any problem. Um, the disease started in the cities. It started in the biggest cities. It started in the international cities. Um, and uh, it only then spread to suburbs and rural areas. And so the thinking of those of people in different places is marked by how their own personal experiences are. And um, it, it, it's just uh, a marvel to see how people's attitudes can change when the disease becomes closer to them. Uh, so basically that's um, a kind of a, a sort of a, 
a touch of an overview. Now, there's one question that which I ask and many people ask. The governments in Europe, in Canada, and the US have responded to this massive unemployment by handing out money by the barrel. Um, and they, they did it because there was no other social safety net available to many, many people who were affected by the downturn in the economy. The question is, where does this money come from? How much longer can countries give out money uh, when they're not receiving money in taxes? Um, what's to stop people from saying, look, I want to, I feel safer getting money and staying home than risking my health and going out to work in a, in a risky um, uh, work environment. Um, these are some of the questions that have, that have not been looked at because the job of governments first was to put the fire out. Uh, and then only afterward to figure out how to clean up all the uh, mess that the fire made. But that question of cleaning up the mess has to come, and it has to come sooner rather than later. And um, as I was saying before, the cushion will get thinner and thinner uh, the less time, it, the more time it takes for the economies to go back to what they were. And um, um, Basically, uh, you know, that's kind of, uh, kind of the way, uh, kind of the way it is. Uh, let me just see here. One of the, one of the more interesting um, uh, results of this of course, as you all know, is a new appreciation of people who work in the healthcare, nursing care, um, elderly care uh, services. People who were taken for granted for so long, people who were underpaid, overexploited, uh, really the bottom of the barrel of our workforce um, people, uh, the risks that they took, the deaths that they experienced put their work in a new light in the face of everyone. Now, to go back to Israel, one of the most interesting aspects of life there is that the Israeli Arab population of the country, who form about 20% of the total country, many, many of them are concentrated in the healthcare professions, whether it's the nursing profession, pharmacist profession, uh, nurses' aides, things like that. And so many people in Israel were hospitalized with, with the um, virus that uh, they saw these Arab citizens who before they either ignored, neglected, or suspected, they saw them in a completely new light. They say, you know what, these people are, are helping us and they're, they're kind of contributing to the effort against this disease. And so the Israeli Arab population kind of put out a, uh, we'll call it a, um, an ad saying, you know, if you had faith in us to look after you in your time of need, why don't you have faith of us in us uh, to allow us to participate in 
full in the rest of society. So it was a kind of a kind of a morale booster for that population. Um, in um, in uh, the, in Canada and in the U.S. and everywhere else where they understand how valuable these people are, we had a um, an idea to allow refugees who took these jobs to become citizens, um, because we understood how how valuable their contribution was uh, in a time uh, of need. And under normal circumstances, these people were, like I said, the, the bottom of the barrel. Um, let me just mention to all of our viewers here in Cote St. Luke uh, that when the epidemic started in Montreal, Cote St. Luke was the number one, one, number one district in the whole Montreal region in number of cases per capita. And um, we earned this great uh, accolade by um, uh, attending uh, a couple of weddings in March after the, uh, or just at the same time as the ban on public gatherings was taking place. And people did get sick in these weddings because uh, people from France were attending and France at the time uh, was the one of the top three countries in Europe to experience COVID. Since then, uh, you know, we've lost that uh, distinction of being number one in Montreal and the number one area in Montreal uh, with uh, that disease, affected by that disease is uh, Montreal North and Ville d'Anjou, which happened to be the places where many of the workers in the healthcare, uh, in the healthcare um, world, especially nurses, aides and cleaners and other hospital workers uh, live. And many of these people come from minority communities. So I'm gonna touch on that and then we'll do some questions. Uh, you've all heard that uh, minority communities have been affected far more uh, racial minority communities have been affected far more by COVID in the US uh, and Canada than the white population. And I'm the kind of person who never likes to hear this type of analysis because it, it asks the question to define who a white person or who a racial minority is. And um, uh, to me, this is, uh, it harks back to South Africa where you had a card that said what race you belong to. We have so many cases today where people are mixed, mixed everything, you know, so it's hard to categorize and statistics are not really kept on how many people of each race are affected by, uh, the, by COVID. But, but we do know one thing, that the more, the worse shape your health is, the more affected you're going to be by this disease. And um, is also something to, to understand that well over 95% of people, well over 95% of people um, are, are uh, if they get sick, they, you know, they're, they're not seriously affected by the disease. It so happens for all kinds of reasons, that members of racial minorities uh, have worse health to start with 
So they are affected more by the disease, not because of the race that they belong to, but because of the health condition that they're in. Now you could say, especially in the States, that these people being poor don't get good health care to start with, they can't afford good health care to start with. Therefore, their health is bad, and therefore, if COVID comes along, they will be affected. That's kind of the way the logic of that explanation should go. But some people almost think of it as a kind of a conspiracy or plot that in some way or other, these minorities are affected um, and white people are not. And it's, it, you know, I, I, the connotation of that kind of argument to me somehow rubs me the wrong way, I would have to say. It's just, uh, it's, um, it, it's uh, a way, again, of people using the disease to achieve results that they would have wanted to achieve even if the disease was not around or not there. Um, so I think uh, I would uh, tell me if you have any comments or questions and I'll, or I will, um, I will um, uh, answer them. Um, I okay. also have... Yeah, sorry, we, we do have a, a, a questioner if you'd like to take it. Uh. Sure. Uh, let me see how, uh, I'll go by question and answer, let's see. Here, I have it, no... Yeah, so we have Howard uh, who's waiting. I'm going to uh, allow the question. I, don't, I, I put, I put uh, it says no open questions on my Q&A. Yeah, but we have another person who's going to ask the question sort of live with their microphone. So okay, here sure. is sure, sure. Howard. Howard, are you there? I think you have to unmute. Yes, uh, I'd like to know where are the great leaders today? Like, where are the Churchills, the Lincolns? Because I think at a time when the world needs leaders like this, how come we don't have this kind of leadership? We like, don't have, like, I've been reading a lot about these leaders. We need these kind of people today. Where are they? Well, one, one interesting aspect of leadership is to look at it in, 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 in the following way, okay? Um, sometimes countries' leaders have to ask themselves, am I trying to lead, let's say, my country only? Or am I trying to lead Europe? Or trying to lead North America? Or trying to lead the world? Because when stresses happen on a society, your first reaction is to sort of curl in like a ball and say, okay, I'm just gonna look after myself. Myself personally, my family, my city, my province, my country. And you take a country like Germany, if they say, well, wait a minute, you know, we have such huge unemployment. Um, we're a wealthy country, but why should we give away our money to even poorer European states when who knows we might be in this situation for years and we'll need all of our own money to look after our own people. So is it good leadership to say, I'm looking after my own people? Or is it good leadership to say, well, we're all in the same boat. This disease can travel from one place to another. And if we don't help everybody, in the end, we're gonna end up being worsely affected. Um, they, you know, these leaders didn't practice they didn't practice for this. They didn't rehearse for this. 
Uh, it's not like a play that you can practice and then go out and give your speech. Um, you know, like I said before, there's some great examples of good leadership in this crisis and some great examples of bad leadership in this crisis. But nowhere, I don't believe, are you going to find somebody who will step up and say, the whole world has to follow our suggestion and the whole world has to act together as one. Because um, by definition, once you do that, you're sort of belittling your own people and your own country. And by the way, by the way, just to, to answer you again, um, Lincoln, uh, when he was a president or even Churchill, were not regarded as great leaders by their people at the time. You might remember that Churchill was defeated in the first election after the Second World War by a large amount by a nobody, by, a, by, a, by a, a, a politician who had zero charisma. Uh, sometimes great leaders are born, you know, generations after they, they, they finish their job. And at the time, no one realizes how great they are. All right, Hershey, we have a question from uh, Toby on the Q&A. Okay. Uh, um, would you, I was, would you like me to read that out? Yeah, sure. I, 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 I don't, I go ahead, read a, read a sure. question. Yeah. So this yeah. question is from Toby. It says, Hershey, yeah. I was very happy that some of the big food chains decided to raise the minimum wage for frontline workers. Now I'm dismayed that they're taking it back. How can they do this? And what can we as a society do to express our disgust at what they have done? Um, so when, uh, when, our, when the COVID hit and we were the most confined to our homes and there was hardly anything open, obviously food, food stores and pharmacies and all the um, hospital services were the only ones that were operating in a kind of a normal way. And those workers uh, faced the uh, risk of transmission uh, to themselves. And many of these workers kind of were afraid even to work. And so the demand for those workers went up and um, supply and demand go together. And so wages were raised in order to uh, encourage these people to stay on the job and to reward the people for the risks they were taking. As the whole economy opens up more um, and uh, these people are not seen any longer as the great heroes that they were because so many other people are working, um, uh, I guess it's an economic decision that these companies are making to go back to what they were before. Um, it's a question of supply and demand. As unemployment goes up uh, and is high in Canada and the US, more workers are available if, to take jobs that these workers may not want any longer. Uh, it's so interesting to see how the Quebec government has jumped so quickly to train, to, to certify nurses aides, and other people in that whole profession, whereas before 
the government was kind of, let's say, reluctant to open up these professions to people and to allow lots of people in. Uh, they were there to sort of cross every T and dot every I to make sure that uh, all their papers and exams were right. And now all of a sudden it's like the floodgates are open and they're allowing everybody. What I didn't notice is the requirement, uh, the French language requirement being waived to um, uh, let people work in the healthcare sector. Some, some of these uh, requirements are, uh, you know, uh, untouchable. Hershey, I don't see another question. If, as, if yeah. anyone has a question, you can press Q&A and you can type your question in or you can uh, press the raise hand button. Hershey, I just have a question for yeah, you. Sure. Um, I mean, this, this segment or this uh, talk is called In the Headlines. Yeah. And since the beginning of this, um, if, you, if one were to follow the headlines, uh, right. you know, hours a day, it would make your head spin because things we thought was correct at the beginning turned out to be less than correct. Um, so how much, or how much headline watching and reading do you think people should do in a, in a case like this? How much is too much? I really do. I'm, I'm a firm, I think, sympathizer with you. Uh, I'm uh, um, uh, in, we live in a world today which isn't the same as the world that, that I grew up in, uh, which is that you turn the news on at six o'clock, uh, whether you were listening to, um, uh, you know, in the US to uh, Walter Cronkite or to, um, oh, what's his name, uh, Lloyd uh, Robertson here. Uh, pretty well, that was about it. Uh, you might have had the radio on and you, you know, you, you got some uh, advertisements on a two minute news segment and then it went on to traffic and sports. Um, today with the internet, you have 24 hour a day coverage. You have amplification and the spreading of information, sometimes information which is wrong sometimes biased information. And I'm not one, I know that uh, there are many people who had two opposite reactions to this. Some said I'm turning off my TV and I'm not watching anything, I'm not listening to anything at all about this. And other people who are so drawn in that they feel if they miss one sort of update that their whole lives could be turned upside down. In the same way, people react differently to this whole threat of the COVID. Some people, uh, are stuck in their houses and are afraid to go out. And there's other people who say, well, um, you know, uh, it's true, but uh, it's not as bad as people say. And, um, you know, even if we catch the disease, chances are we'll survive it. So there's a very wide range of attitudes regarding this. Um, uh, it's in the interests of the news providers to provide news. And therefore, um, you know, they do the best they can at doing that. I don't believe that we should be glued to our TV sets watching news. Uh, I, I certainly don't. Uh, I think that it's important to be informed, but to get a whole variety of information in, in many different ways. Um, you know, we, we've become so segregated in, in our news consumption, especially in the States between left-wing and right-wing uh, news uh, um, providers. And you never get to see uh, news, uh, you know, of a different sort. And even here, I mean, uh, nobody is covering uh, news in uh, the third, uh, other parts of the world. Uh, it's barely mentioned. Um, 
you know, how Asia is coping, how Europe is coping, how Africa is coping. And, and news uh, of that sort kind of just gets so filtered through that by the time it gets here, there's just a few grains of it. Okay. I don't see any other questions. So uh, before wrapping it up, do you have any final words? Yes, I just do. I have, I do. I wanted to mention about, um, I started to talk a bit about xenophobia and how, uh, how COVID has led to xenophobia around the world. And I mentioned a few examples, but I didn't mention all of the examples that uh, I had um, noted and that um, whoever is seen as an enemy or as a target in certain countries, um, COVID allows the expression of prejudice to be spoken where normally it wouldn't really, would be kosher to do that. So for example, um, there's anti-Chinese feeling in a lot of countries long before, long before COVID ever happened. In Korea, Japan, and Indonesia, those are three countries that I noted down. Um, there's been anti-Chinese feeling for 100 years or more. And today these countries are, are kind of blaming China and Chinese people for this COVID. Um, in, uh, I was mentioning in, in India, Sri Lanka and Myanmar, there are a lot of anti-Muslim feelings. And um, there have been anti-Muslim riots in these places long before COVID happened. And uh, now the press is saying, well, COVID is the fault of Muslims and that, uh, you know, these people deserve whatever they get. Um, in China, uh, China has had so many ties lately with the African world and has supported Africa and has sent so, many, so much money and, and expertise to Africa that many Africans have come to study in China. But of course, China being such a homogeneous society, um, you know, and Africans being so different looking and such a, uh, such a different culture, the Africans have been blamed in China for spreading COVID. So, um, uh, um, you know, each society has, could pick on the weaker elements and use COVID as a kind of a lever to push their xenophobic um, feelings. In Russia, anti-Chinese feeling. In Australia, anti-Chinese feeling. Uh, you might have seen all kinds of press reports in the U.S. and even in Canada of of you know Chinese people being insulted and, and, and all of this type of thing, even though um, you know they uh, have nothing to do with COVID, uh, and China itself is is one is not blameless in this whole issue, and the whole issue of saying well did they cover it up or not, um, could they have been more open quicker, uh, you know the U.S. has threatened to sue them because of all the um, damage that the world has suffered. Um, these are blame type questions and political questions that, uh, you know, continue to be raised as long as uh, it's in the interest of people to raise them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the story about that. Um, so I, I know that, uh, Hershey, you're going to be with us in July for, I think, four... Uh, I think next week. Next, oh, next week, week as well. Another, yeah, next week as well. And then I'm missing a week and then and then, um, uh, then after that for another uh, six. Uh, I'd ask people if you have subjects you want me to speak about, just email me, let me know. Um, 
and uh, or you know you can contact coaching Luke and they will contact me as you know I speak about many 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 different kinds of subjects um, historical subjects scientific subjects political subjects uh, language subjects all kinds of things and um, it's not uh, you know it, it was difficult for me today not to speak or at least give it just a little kind of a little brush little brush with a paintbrush of, of how this has affected our lives. It would be irresponsible to ignore it. But from now on, if you want, I can talk to you about, um, you know, Bolivian history in the 19th century. If you want to get the, <laughs> if you want to get so uh, away from uh, COVID and that type of thing. So uh, to me, uh, I'm interested in everything. And, uh, you know, I want to bring things that might be interesting to you, which is not Bolivian history of the 19th century, but other kinds of things that are, are current and that are interesting and that are, uh, you know, uh, subject worthy. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah. to everyone who called in today on the telephone broadcasting okay. service. Thank you to all who um, are using the Zoom link and are watching us live. And uh, join us next week with more Hershey Duoskin and join us every day at 2 p.m. on the Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. And I miss you all. I miss all of you guys who are, who are, um, you know, uh, who came to Coats and Luke, who came to the library on Friday afternoons. It was like a regular Friday afternoon uh, event. And uh, the only difference this time is you have to make your own tea and cookies. And uh, I can't put them through the, uh, I can't put them through the iPad to get into your kitchen. So, uh, Come back uh, next week and uh, we'll see each other again. Thanks a lot.